If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Acts 10, 30 through 45. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear that you have been commanded by the Lord." So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead." And he commanded us to preach the people and testify that he is the one anointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Well, welcome. Um, as Alex mentioned, my name is Greg. Uh, I am a uh, elder elect or elder in training here at Jubilee and have the opportunity every now and then to bring the scriptures and to, to, to speak to you guys. And it's always a pleasure, always an honor to do that. Uh, obviously, today is the first Sunday in Advent, and Advent is a word that means coming or arrival. It's a time that we take uh, to celebrate the appearance of Jesus. Traditionally, that has been uh, with the birth of Jesus because of Christmas, all about the birth of Jesus. But we're also looking forward to his triumphant return at the end of the age. So Advent is a time for Christians to practice waiting in faith for the unveiling or the revealing of the Christ and to consider what it means for us to prepare for its arrival. Now, this year, in the spirit of the season, we're celebrating Advent with this sermon series, The Names of Jesus. Each week, we're going to look at a different name or a different title uh, that is given to Jesus, used in relationship to him. And today, we are talking about the Christ. But why the names of Jesus? I mean, what's the significance of a name? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Yet intuitively, we know that names are significant. They tell us not only who we are, but what we can become, where we've been and where we're going, what rights are due to us and what is expected out of us. Anyone here see Marvel's Black Panther movie this year? Okay, a couple fans in the room. The rest of you, I don't know where y'all been. The movie only made $1.3 billion, the highest grossing movie of 2018. Well, if you haven't seen it, it's a little spoiler, not too much, just a tint, just a taste. 
There's this epic scene when the, the main character, T'Challa, the king of Wakanda, <laughs> hail the king, right? Wakanda forever. <laughs> when he is, comes face to face with the enemy, with his arch nemesis, Eric Killmonger. Now, how does this villain, this, this war dog, this mercenary killer even get an appearance with the king? How does he even get access to the throne room? Because of his name. He's the son of executed prince of Wakanda in Jobu. And in this, this moment filled with angst and animus and revenge, he declares his Wakandan name and stakes his claim for the throne. Indajaka! And all this other African stuff that I don't understand. But it's his name. That's why he can be there. And in that moment, everything changes. And so ensues a clash of the old world and new world, at least in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But what does this have to do with Advent and with Jesus? Well, when we refer to Jesus as the Christ, we're not simply saying, oh, which Jesus are you talking about? Uh, Jesus from Toledo or Jesus from Milwaukee? No, Jesus the Christ. Oh, yeah, that one. What we're saying is we're making some claims, claims about his identity, his authority, and his claim to God's throne. You see, Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one, and it's directly related to the Hebrew Messiah or Messiah, the anointed one of God. Okay, and that's kind of a big deal. God's anointed one. To anoint someone is to set them apart for God's service, usually through the pouring on of oil on their head. And in the Old Testament, there are three main occasions for anointing. In the preparation of prophets, priests, and kings. The prophet is God's mouthpiece, entrusted to faithfully deliver God's word to God's people. And the prophet is not typically just anointed with oil, but also with supernatural power to do miracles and signs that can authenticate the message. The hidden thoughts of God revealed and the power of God on display. And a priest is God's intermediary. He stands in the gap between God and his people. This is usually performed or achieved through an elaborate system of rituals, washings, sacrifices. And the king, well, the king is God's delegate. You see, God is the true king and all authority belongs to him. And human authority is simply a surrogate borrowed so that men can stand before God's people in God's place and execute God's justice. Any ancient Jew upon hearing the title God's anointed one would have immediately called to their mind prophet, priest, and king. So when the biographies of Jesus, the gospel writers, when they introduce him from the outset as the Christ, it's no accident. The gospel writers have an agenda. They're setting the context for us. They're calling on 1,500 years of Jewish history and Jewish culture. The title Christ is laden with expectation. Think about the pregnant woman, 39 and a half weeks, swollen belly, swollen hands, swollen feet, Ready to get that baby out. Denise, I see you, girl. (laughs) 
bursting at the seams. The idea of the Christ is pregnant with anticipation. 1,500 years of prophetic anticipation. Waiting, watching, wondering, what would a man anointed by God do with that anointing? So that's the background. Let's consider our text. The passage we've heard read comes from the book of Acts, a historical account of how the message of Jesus spread all through the Roman Empire and beyond in the years after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And this passage chronicles the Apostle Peter's first attempt to share the message of Jesus to people who are not Jewish. It actually marks a pivotal moment in redemption history and God's plan to save the world. The moment when God makes good on his promise that through Abraham and through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You notice the theme here? It's a lot of waiting in the Bible. The promise to Abraham is 2,000 years before this moment, but everything that God has done since Abraham has been leading up to these events. Along with that waiting is an eager anticipation of God's power. Always at work, even when we can't see it. So it's instructive for us to look at this text when we consider the Christ, because Peter introduces Jesus from the outset as the anointed one of God. It's also helpful because you are probably like me. I am not Jewish. I'm sure none of you are surprised by that confession. But that means that I don't automatically have the background of the history and the culture and the rituals. Neither did Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman soldier, a centurion, uh, well thought of, a devout man, uh, but not Jewish. Now, he lived in Caesarea, which is only 70 miles from Jerusalem, so he would have heard about this Jesus, all that he said and all that he did, at least what people claimed. And he was very, very much interested to hear about this Jesus. So if you are like me, not Jewish, but interested to know about this Jesus, then you're in the right place. So let's look at what Peter says about the significance of Jesus to these people who are not Jewish. Starting with verse 34, I'll read this again. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God to be witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To, all, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. Early in preaching this message, Peter introduces Jesus as 
anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power. This is a clear reference to the scene of Jesus's baptism. If you know the story, Jesus is baptized by John, his cousin, in the river Jordan. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open and the spirit descends on him like a dove. And an audible voice from heaven booms out and says, this is my son, listen to him. Anyone in the room ever interview for a job? So here's the scene. The interviewer sits down, pulls out your file, says, so I see here you, uh, you don't have any experience and uh, you uh, didn't graduate from rabbinical school. You aren't trained like as a Pharisee or as a Sadducee, as a lawyer or a scribe. So uh, why exactly should we hire you for the job to be God's messenger? I mean, your resume is just a blank piece of paper that says references available upon request. And then the phone rings. Hello? This is my son. Listen to him. Okay, um, when can you start? I can't think of a better professional reference than God speaking from heaven to authenticate. This is my son. Listen to him. And Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell of the things that Jesus Christ did. Peter is going to show us as we look at this text that the Christ, the anointed one of God, means prophet, priest, and king. But since I'm preaching to y'all, I got to say prophet, priest, and prince because preachers love alliteration. So we're going to do that. First, Christ means the prophet. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. A ministry of miracles often accompanies a prophet. In fact, if you consider the Bible as a whole, you'll see that every time that God unveils a new aspect of his ministry, of his revelation, he sends a messenger. And that messenger speaks to the people excitedly about what is God is doing. But how will they know that this messenger is really from God? First, the things that the messenger says will come to pass. And second, while they're waiting, miraculous signs and wonders, things that only God could accomplish often accompany the message. Jesus himself puts it this way. If I am not doing the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. If you ask a Jewish person, ancient or modern, who's the greatest prophet? in the Hebrew Bible, invariably, they will say Moses. Because Moses does the greatest miracles. But interestingly, even Moses testifies that there will come a time when God will raise up another prophet like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, God says this to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak on my behalf, I myself will require it. So how is Jesus like Moses? First, they have similar origin stories. Have you ever considered Moses is born in a time when the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt and they're growing so fast, so greatly that Pharaoh decrees 
murder of every Hebrew boy. Moses' parents must hide him away to protect him before he can be revealed to the world. When Jesus Christ is born, Herod is looking for the Christ. And he decrees the death of every Jewish boy under the age of two. And what do Jesus' parents do? They flee to Egypt of all places. To what? To hide him away until he can be revealed to the world. But not only that, Jesus and Moses both perform miracles. And Jesus' miracles share many symbolic elements with Moses's. So first, Moses turns the water of the river Nile into blood. Jesus turns the water at the wedding in Cana into wine. Moses provides the people manna, bread from heaven. Jesus twice multiplies the loaves in a deserted place to feed the multitudes. Moses parts the Red Sea and the nation walks on dry land. Jesus doesn't even bother to move the water. He just walks on it. Moses provides healing for the people after an outbreak of poisonous snakes. Jesus goes and heals the sick every place he visits and delivers people from demonic oppression. He even cures death. Moses' face shines brightly after he meets with God and delivers the Ten Commandments. Jesus Christ goes up a mountain as well. And what happens there? In the presence of three of the disciples, his clothing and his entire body are transformed to be bright, brighter white than anyone could bleach them. And who shows up out of nowhere? Approvingly, Moses and Elijah. If Moses is the quintessential prophet in the Jewish mind, Jesus breaks the mold. He has not only eclipsed Moses, he has surpassed him. Moses' other great, great accomplishment is that he carries, hand delivers, in fact, the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, the word of God delivered. Jesus, it says, spoke with an otherworldly authority interpreting, applying, and extending the law of Moses. No longer does he need a booming voice from heaven. The booming voice is now Jesus. Not only that, Moses died. He didn't even enter the promised land and his ministry ended. But this Christ, though he faced and suffered death, God raised him from the dead and his prophetic ministry and his miraculous power are amplified through death. It's clear that Peter sees Jesus as this second Moses. Twice earlier in the book of Acts, in chapter 3 and chapter 7, Peter specifically refers to this passage in Deuteronomy, this prophet like Moses, when he is explaining, commending, and preaching Jesus Christ. And Jesus agrees with Peter. Jesus himself says this. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. When did Moses write of Jesus? Except in Deuteronomy 18, that there would be a prophet like Moses that God would raise up. Clearly, Peter believes that Jesus is the prophet. Second, 
Christ means priest. In verse 43, Peter says this, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The highest honor of a priest is to stand before God's altar and offer a sacrifice to cover sins. This ritual was instituted as a regular practice to be a continual reminder of the rebellion of mankind. Here's the thing. Humans are in rebellion and we do need an intervention. Take a look around you. The world isn't exactly full of shiny, happy people dancing. It's violence, injustice, exploitation everywhere you look. And if you're thinking, yeah, that's right. All those people out there, man, I don't understand what they're doing. They're all haters. Then you're guilty of pride. You see, people, society may be hopelessly corrupt, but we are society. It's just like Rick Grimes says in The Walking Dead. We're all infected. Sin has touched us all, corrupted us all, wounded us all. So how do we repair our relationship with God? Religious people will tell you, well, find a priest, you know, priest is going to forgive your sins, set you right. In the Hebrew Bible, the priest would offer an animal sacrifice on your behalf to accomplish this task. Mm, Sounds pretty gross, huh? I mean, bloody and guts and yeah, it's just as bad as you think, probably worse. But the sacrifice was a surefire way to show that you were seriously sorry for turning your back on God, rebelling against him, going your own way. Where else do you think the idea of a peace offering comes from? And the greatest work, the greatest honor of a priest? Well, that would be the sacrifice of Yom Kippur, the National Day of Atonement. On this day, only one priest, the high priest, was allowed to handle the sacrifice. He wore garments that were reserved for this one day. There was a series of washings and ceremonies, strict instructions on how to handle the sacrifice. Not just one animal, but three animals. And not only that, but along with these instructions came some not so subtle warnings of death to the one who didn't show God his proper respect. But why all the fuss? Well, Hebrews 9.22 tells us this. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Really? Shedding of blood? Yeah. That's what forgiveness costs. Blood. And specifically, blood given by a priest. So how can Peter claim that everyone who believes in Jesus can experience forgiveness? Well, in verse 39, Peter says, he recounts that Jesus was put to death by hanging on a tree, a euphemism for crucifixion. It was obvious to anyone in the first century that if you were crucified, that if that was the way that you died, that you were hated by God, accursed and abandoned, If you thought the animal sacrifice bit was gruesome, you ain't seen nothing yet. Crucifixion was an unspeakable, gruesome, torturous death, heinous, reserved for the very worst criminals, people totally abandoned. I'll spare you the gory details, but suffice to say, no one in the first century, no one in Peter's time would have debated those points. But what do we see? We see... This Jesus, obviously cursed by God, 
hated by God, is raised by God. Any person who heard it would have been incredulous. What? The Jesus of Nazareth? The guy who was crucified, was raised? Doesn't make any sense. He's a heinous, terrible criminal. So why? Why would God raise him? God raised him because he was a priest. Because he was a perfect sacrifice. Because he was perfectly obedient to God. That was his reward for his obedience. Obedience to death. In fact, the scriptures say that that Moses was faithful to God like a servant, but that Jesus Christ was faithful in God's house like a son, like he had skin in the game because he owned it. It was his inheritance and he didn't flinch. He didn't turn back. The scriptures tell us this. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and bulls like a priest, but by the means of his own blood, like a sacrifice, thus securing an eternal redemption, eternal redemption. In Peter's mind, the anointed one is the ultimate priest and the ultimate sacrifice. Third, the Christ is prince. Verse 36 and verse 42 say this. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. According to verse 42, God reverses the curse. Jesus goes from the lowest place to the highest place, Lord and judge. But Greg, you know, I I grew up hearing about sweet baby Jesus meek and mild. You know, the baby Jesus that Ricky Bobby prays to in Talladega Nights. Dear eight pounds, six ounce, little infant baby Jesus, don't even know a word yet. Just just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Yeah, that Jesus. How do we go from Charles Wesley's hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, to this mean, angry, Judge Joe Brown, Jesus? Well, it's true. It's a good question. Jesus was meek. He did come as a baby. In fact, it's quite remarkable to think that God would make himself vulnerable to be a baby, totally dependent on his earthly parents for survival. We know that he grew in stature and he grew into a man who was gentle and approachable, He was always surrounded by people, by children. I mean, think about it. If you saw a group of 12 homeless men wandering around St. Louis today, I don't think you'd let your children play with them. But Jesus and his disciples constantly surrounded by people because he was honest and true. He was accepting and inviting. He was so cool. And approachable, everybody wanted to be with Jesus. But don't let Jesus' gentleness fool you. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. The last book of the Bible speaks of Jesus' return like this. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty and his robe and on his thigh. He has written king of kings and Lord of lords. And just in case you're tempted to think, oh, you know, all this talk about judgment is, is overblown. I mean, God is love. He's so accepting. Like, I can't imagine that he could you know, judge or condemn good people. Let's hear what Jesus himself has to say about judgment. This is from John 3. Most people know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We love it. and We stop there. But let's read verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's good news. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And there you have it. Straight from the horse's mouth. Jesus himself affirms his role as judge and the basis for his judgment. Belief in him. There's no doubt stark contrast between these two depictions of Jesus. One is a humble teacher and two is a coming, angry, righteous judge. But with good reason. The two depictions are related to his two advents. You see, the first time he comes to inaugurate an age of God's unprecedented grace and mercy through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus has established a path to God that is accessible to all. Remember what Peter says at the outset? He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Up to this point in history, before Peter and Cornelius meet, only Jews have access to God to God's love, to God's kindness, to God's favor. If you wanted to draw near to Yahweh, you had to become Jewish first. But God is the God of all humanity and all the nations. And he promised that he would bless every nation through the offspring of Abraham. Don't you see? The story of Peter and Cornelius is the first moment when grace is received by non-Jews. You and me. I don't know why you're in your chair. I am so excited because if it hadn't been for this, I would be on the outside of grace. It says that you are on the outside, far from God's grace, but he has brought you near. And this is the moment. This is the moment when it happens. An epic moment in redemption history. The doors of heaven flung wide open. The Gentiles are included in God's grace. And it's all made possible by Jesus, meek and mild. I'm so glad he didn't come the first time as a judge. So glad he didn't come as a conquering king. I needed him to come for me, meek and mild, inviting and approachable. But with his second coming, This current age of grace and mercy will come screeching to a halt. And an unprecedented age of reckoning will ensue. And who will lead the charge? The rider on the white horse. 
faithful and true. Out of his mouth comes a sword with which he slays his enemies. (sighs) Truly, Christ is prince. And not just prince, but king. And not just king, but judge. So what does the Christ mean to you? Peter, in proclaiming the Christ to Cornelius, presents Jesus as God's anointed one, declaring the breaking in of God's kingdom through his prophetic power. He describes Jesus as more than just a priest, but the ultimate sacrifice, more than just a king, the ultimate judge. Peter incorporates elements of all three, prophet, priest, and king, when he presents Jesus to these non-Jews. And before Peter can even ask these Gentiles, even ask Cornelius how he responds, the Holy Spirit falls as evidence of faith. How will you respond? Do you see Jesus as simply a moral teacher? Or is he the prophet to end all prophets? He's not just God's spokesman. He's the definitive revelation of the character and the power of God. Today, you can ask Jesus to continue his prophetic ministry in your life, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. There'll be a time for prayer at the end of this service. We believe that Jesus' power did not end in the grave, but was amplified by his resurrection and is real today. Do you need good in your life? Do you need healing in your life? Do you, are you oppressed? Do you need to be delivered from the devil? Jesus Christ can do it. Do you see Jesus as a spiritual guru? Someone who is advocating one way among many to reach God? Or like Peter, do you see him as the last priest? The sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Able to remove sin. To make you right with God. To make your heart pure. Not just cover your sin, but take it out. Look around you. There is no doubt that all is not right with this world. Now look inside of you. Have you realized that all is not right inside? That sin and brokenness have gone deep inside of us? Left on our own, we are hopeless, hopelessly estranged from God, incapable of making our way back to him through good actions and moral precepts. The scripture says shedding of blood is necessary for forgiveness. Sin, sin is simply turning our back on God the true king, and living our own way. But that is treason to a king, and treason is punishable by death. In a court of law, are the guilty acquitted just because of good things that they've done? Because of money that they've given or time that they've volunteered? No. If you're guilty, you're sentenced. Good deeds can't remove guilt. Don't wait until he comes back and then bring your record of good and hope that it will save you. There is a blood price for sin. Someone will pay it. You can pay it or Jesus can pay it. Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in me is condemned already. Finally, maybe you see Jesus as a revered founder of the Christian faith. Okay, 
But do you revere him as your king, as your judge? Have you taken seriously his commands? The threat of judgment? Acknowledging Jesus as Lord requires total surrender and total obedience. It begins with taking seriously his commands and it ends with following him on the Calvary road of discipleship. It always looks like a radical reorienting of our lives. Listen to how the unscrupulous and corrupt tax collector Zacchaeus describes his own change of heart. Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus was the Bernie Madoff of his day, the Rob Blagojevich, the Paul Manafort. But you see how he's changed. Even the way he spends his money, everything has to be changed when Jesus comes as Lord. When faith in Jesus upends, overturns, and rearranges our everyday decisions, everyday decisions, not just the big stuff, but the little things, that is when we know that faith has truly begun to take root in our hearts. Friends, Advent is a time to consider each of the ways that the Christ, the anointed one of God, comes into the world. When he first arrived, he was baby Jesus, meek and mild. When he became a man, he came preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he comes again, he will come wearing a judge's robe and carrying a warrior's sword. Before we finish, there's one more coming, one more way in which Jesus comes to us that we have to consider. And that is his entrance into our hearts by faith. Between his first coming and his final coming lies his indwelling. Today, you can receive Jesus. You can know him like Peter knew him. You see, Peter is a guy who walked with Jesus for three years and then betrayed him. In Jesus' time of need, Peter denied him. When Jesus was being falsely accused and false witnesses were claiming that he had done heinous things, Peter turned his back. Then Christ was nailed to the cross and Peter didn't even go to see it. But the, Jesus, the Christ, came and restored Peter. He said, Peter, I forgive you. I love you. I've chosen you. Whatever you need, this Christ meets that need. He did it for Peter. And he took him from Peter the betrayer to Peter the apostle who proclaimed and opened the door of faith for everyone in this room. Do you know this Christ? And are you ready to meet him when he comes?